0: Welcome to Movement Memos, a Truthout podcast about organizing, solidarity, and the work of making change. I'm your host, writer and organizer, Kelly Hayes. Today we are talking about abolishing the police. More specifically, we are talking about a new book from Miriam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie called No More Police, A Case for Abolition. It will be no surprise to anyone that I love this book. But I am really excited to be joined today by my friend Andrea Ritchie to explore some of the ideas in this incredibly important book, which Kirkus Reviews has called a brilliantly articulated plan to abolish the police. Andrea Ritchie is a Black lesbian immigrant survivor who has spent the last three decades documenting, organizing, advocating, litigating, and agitating around policing and the criminalization of Black Women, Girls, Trans, and Gender Nonconforming People. She is the author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, and co-author of Say Her Name, Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women, Queer Injustice, The Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States, and most recently, No More Police. Andrea co-founded the Interrupting Criminalization Initiative with Miriam Kaba, as well as the In Our Names Network, which is a network of over 20 organizations working to end police violence against Black women, girls, trans, and gender nonconforming people. Part Handbook and Part Roadmap, No More Police is a book written by organizers for organizers. The book makes a case for abolition, outlining failures of policing and police reforms, but also presents us with a practical vision for remaking the world we live in. This is an expansive book that has chapter titles like How Do We Get There? Toward a Police-Free Future. And as an abolitionist organizer, I can tell you, this is a book that a lot of us have been waiting for. No More Police also addresses some of the tensions that often arise in abolitionist organizing, like concerns around personal safety, or whether to demand the imprisonment of killer cops. It even takes on the very tricky topic of abolition's relationship to the state, which is a touchy subject given that some abolitionists identify as communists or socialists, while others identify as anarchists or none of those things. My conversation with Andrea about this book went deep, so today we are going to talk about policing, Language, and safety. And in two weeks, you will be hearing from us again about the relationship between abolition and the state, abolitionist futures, and more. The first thing I really want to dig into today is how this book tackles language and how the media shapes our ideas about who cops are and what they do. As Andrea and Miriam write in No More Police, it's not simply that we can't imagine a world without police but that we are disciplined into not having that imagination through propaganda, propaganda favorable to law enforcement that inundates mainstream media.
1: We really got to do a deep dive into how language shapes our imagination in terms of how we speak about police and policing. And in that conversation, we're really informed by people like Rachel Hertzing, who has made it her mission for us not to use the word officer. And her reasoning behind that is officer implies someone that you should defer to. And there's so much deference to police around everything to do with public safety. What they say is taken as gospel without question without requiring proof of concept without requiring any kind of accountability for when what they're saying actually doesn't line up with the facts or people's experiences and Rachel really feels like words like officer embody that kind of deference and that if we use words like cops or police which reflect what they're actually doing or or who they are and don't imply that deference It shapes our imagination about what they're saying and what they're doing differently. We also learned a lot from David Correa and Tyler Wall, uh, who have a book called *Police: A Field Guide* that talks about cop speak and the ways in which police shape our imaginations and the words that they use. You know, so armed suspect, uh, use of force, and just the the ways in which they describe the work that they're doing and the people they're encountering and their response to them in ways that sanitize their behavior, that place the blame squarely on the individuals who they're committing violence against or denying protection to, and really put us in their minds and in their framework. And then we also got to talk about how the media colludes in this process. And I'm always inspired by Ida B. Wells in so many ways, but she, when writing about white terror and lynching in the late 19th century, talked about the ways in which the media was an accomplice to that state sponsored or condoned terrorism. And I think the same is very much true today. And so, for instance, one term we talk about in the book is officer involved shooting. So somehow it's not the cop shot someone and killed them. It's a shooting happened. An officer was somehow nearby, but there's no one who's responsible for what happened. And also, we don't necessarily even hear in that sentence that the person died. And we certainly don't hear in that sentence how they died, how painful it was, the consequences and impacts on their families and communities, or any question whether that was the appropriate response at all. And so there's been a lot of conversation lately about propaganda and the ways in which TV shows like Law and Order or even Paw Patrol or cops sort of shape our imagination about what police are and what they do. And we take a little bit of a deeper dive uh, with the help of people like Rachel Hertzing, David Correa, Tyler Wall, into how deeply into our language cops speak and propaganda permeates and how that shapes our imagination about what policing is what it's doing, what it's not doing, and the necessity of it.
0: One recent consequence of propaganda is that many media outlets have regurgitated fear-mongering about rising crime rates in the face of fascist violence. When Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, was recently attacked by a man who entered her home saying, where's Nancy? Media outlets, including the New York Times, joined Republicans in pointing to rising crime rates, rather than emphasizing the likelihood that this was a fascist assassination attempt. Nancy Pelosi was a named target of the Capitol rioters, who also voiced plans to hang Mike Pence on January 6th. U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene has previously stated that the Speaker was eligible for a death sentence due to her supposedly treasonous acts in Congress. And once liked a social media post indicating that the fastest way to remove Pelosi from office would be a bullet to the head. Representative Lauren Boebert faced calls for her removal after the January 6th insurrection for tweeting about Pelosi's location during the attack and what many surmised was an effort to help the rioters locate and potentially harm the Speaker. But in spite of the murderous, fascistic rhetoric Republicans have aimed at Pelosi for years, and the riotous hunt for the Speaker that many of us have witnessed in chilling videos of the Capitol riots, the attack on her husband has been framed by many as the product of rising crime rates. On Sunday, Elon Musk shared a conspiracy theory about the attack on Paul Pelosi on Twitter, a platform he now owns. Notably, the conspiracy theory played into right-wing smears against queer people, which are an important part of the current fascist agenda. For Musk, sharing an offensive story from a widely discredited website seems reminiscent of Trump's frequent nods to QAnon an embrace of the fact that his target audience wants nothing to do with reality. But what's with the rising crime narrative around an attack that was so clearly targeted? When it comes to Republican leaders, the explanation is obvious. For them, blaming this attack on rising crime rates is no different than blaming school shootings on mental health issues in our society. In this case, propaganda is a form of misdirection which is all Republicans are left with when their violence manifests in ways that people find upsetting. Democratic leaders are poorly positioned to interrupt this narrative because their neoliberal governance offers up policing and prisons as the only possible solutions to just about every social problem. That makes copaganda and fear-mongering about crime as important to them as it is to Republicans. Politicians, whether Democratic or Republican, who preside over deprivation and skyrocketing inequality, need their cops to make sure everyone stays in line. That means Democrats have relied on narratives about rising crime rates, rejecting calls to defund the police, and proposing new funding bonanzas for cops. The Democrats also seem to live in fear of saying anything too polarizing even as their opposition seeks to overthrow the electoral system amid the rise of global fascism. The corporate news media thrives on copaganda, often acting as stenographers for the cops, as Miriam Kaba often says. So, in the absence of more aggressive rhetoric from most Democrats, it's not surprising that most networks and publications are failing to capture the reality of the fascist threat we face. Our society is not prepared for an honest assessment of its own violence. I have had a number of friends reach out to me in recent days to express how nervous they are about the media's handling of the attack on Paul Pelosi and how poorly the media is responding to what we are up against. This kind of failure, sadly, is not new. We have also seen the corporate media fail miserably when it comes to covering threats like climate change, often opting to ignore the topic. Given that the corporate media is owned and operated by the very people who are screwing us all over, they have no incentive to acknowledge truths that might lead to social upheaval or demands for systemic change. Much like politicians, the super-rich have no solutions for the trouble ahead, aside from relying on police to keep our suffering, destruction, and disposal as orderly as possible which makes propaganda important to them too. So these outlets tend to peddle predictable narratives that enshrine the status quo, which includes the idea that we have no constructive options as a society in crisis except to throw more money at police. The contradictory nature of this argument amid the rise of fascism, given that police are clearly a fascistic force, is neither acknowledged nor resolved. It cannot be because neither Democrats nor the corporate press have any framework in which they can name these truths while also maintaining the status quo.
1: Micah Herskin in Atlanta did a really interesting sort of mapping of how the prison industrial complex, who the players are at the local level and how they're playing out in a fight that Organizers there are in to stop the construction of a multi, multi million dollar police facility on forest land. And, you know, he mapped how the police foundation and the police union and police officials are connected to the Atlanta Journal Constitution, which is, you know, the paper of record in Atlanta and probably frames itself as, you know, mainstream and perhaps slightly even. You know, liberal, but there's a way in which the relationships between police as political actors and the mainstream media are not visible. And we need folks to do as Micah did. And there's a resource that he created that's available on the Interrupting Criminalization website to map exactly how police as a political force are shaping mainstream media, not just in the press conferences they're having, but in the relationships between their foundations, their unions, their officials, and the media.
0: In Miriam and Andrea's discussion of propaganda, I found one example they offered particularly interesting. William Golding's novel, Lord of the Flies. That whole
1: discussion flowed from a uh, story that Mariam sent and and wanted to include in the conversation about a dozen or so Tongan teens who found themselves stranded on island after taking a boat for a joyride and uh, being lost at sea in a storm. And who were on the island for 18 months living cooperatively with mutual aid and accountability, resolving conflict peaceably creatively, because they knew that all of those things were necessary to their survival. And it's a story that she's been sharing for years. And as we were talking about that in comparison to Lord of the Flies, which is a fictional story that was actually written in response to, I learned, another account of folks stranded, I think it might have been Swiss Family Robinson, that the author of Lord of the Flies didn't think was realistic. He didn't think that it was realistic that people, you know, stranded on an island together could live peaceably and cooperate together to survive. He wanted to articulate a story that advanced the idea that humans are inherently uh, violent, chaotic, and will descend into uh, savagery, basically, without the controls of civilization. And I think what I learned from that is that. Propaganda is not always legible as such, because until that conversation with Mariam, I hadn't thought about how everyone in the Commonwealth, in English-speaking world almost, is required to read Lord of the Flies in middle school or whenever you're supposed to read it, maybe high school, but that it's basically conditioning all of us to believe that that is the world that will ensue without police. And again, David Korea and Tyler Wall uh, write in their book, Violent Order, sort of more deeply about this idea that is at the root of propaganda and is at the root of sort of the order that police manufacture is this notion that police are necessary to civilization and without them, we will return to a world of, as I say, it's nasty British and short, that's violent, chaotic, and dangerous. And Certainly, Lord of the Flies isn't the only piece of fiction that reifies that story, but it is definitely one of the most widespread. And then I think we see, whether it's The Purge, it's Blade Runner, it's most recently folks were writing about yellow jackets in this way, that there are so many stories that are told over and over again, and we wouldn't necessarily think of those as propaganda in a way that we would target cops or Paw Patrol or Law and Order, but those are equally, if not more, shaping our imagination about what's possible. And we don't often see stories in media of any kind in which people cooperate and collaborate to survive without someone forcing them to at the end of a gun or a baton.
0: It's so important for us, as organizers, to understand that just about every imagination we encounter has been forced through a gauntlet of narratives about how fundamentally cruel and dangerous other people are, and how screwed we would all be without police around us to keep us safe. But as Audrey and Miriam document in their book, A New York Times investigation based on data collected by police found only 1% to 4% of police calls are for serious violent crime, like homicide, rape, or robbery. When police do respond to such calls, they find the person responsible a mere one-quarter of the time. Arrest and conviction rates are even more abysmal. But we have been socially programmed to believe in the necessity of police. I was reminded of that reality as I stood in a park over the summer when I addressed a group of mostly black and brown junior high and high school students in a conversation about police and prison abolition. After I introduced myself and the ideas I was there to discuss, a young person immediately raised her hand to say that while she agreed with a lot of what I was saying, she still thought that police and prisons were necessary because of murderers and rapists. I agreed with her that rape and murder were major concerns, but also reviewed some statistics. Because when you want to diss the police, the numbers are pretty much always on your side. For example, according to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, out of every 1,000 sexual assaults, 975 perpetrators will go free. As Matt Clark reported in Criminal Legal News in 2018, statistically, U.S. law enforcement agencies are the worst crime solvers in the Western world. As Miriam and Andrea write in No More Police, on average, police will solve far fewer than half of homicides or other violent crimes. So-called clearance rates are also notoriously unreliable. In Chicago, where I live, for example, police have managed to bolster their embarrassingly low clearance rate for homicides ...by more frequently blaming dead suspects for murders. In New Orleans, Louisiana, and Columbus, Ohio, police declare a homicide cleared when a warrant has been issued for a suspect's arrest. Crime analyst Jeff Asher argues that the high clearance rates of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when many police departments reported 90% clearance rates for homicides, should be disregarded entirely as these numbers were likely the product of both false arrests and false reporting. So the problem isn't that police have gotten worse at catching killers, but rather that this was never a core function of policing, or something that cops were terribly good at. After reviewing some statistics with the young people, I asked them how the numbers matched up against their own experience. Were the police preventing violent crimes or creating safety in our neighborhood. Did seeing police make them feel safe? The sense of recognition on some of their faces pained me. On some level, some of them already knew the police were not there to protect them, but we all want to believe a panic button exists, and that if something bad happens, we can hit that panic button, and that we might be helped. I tried to explain to those young people that we do need those mechanisms, and that people are creating and sustaining modes of safety every day within their own communities, just as we always have. The young people I spoke with that day were pretty open-minded, but in my experience, young people often have more flexible imaginations than those of us who have been inundated with propaganda for decades.
1: The experience that you just described of sort of walking people through the ways that police don't actually produce safety and then sort of the solemn and almost kind of unmooring realization that people have in that moment is something I've seen a lot with people who I represented in cases of police, what's called police brutality cases, or, or just the violence of policing when they've been directly impacted by it. And seek redress in civil courts and they've described something similar where when they have been beaten or sexually assaulted or otherwise violated by the cops one client of mine talked about it as kind of the ground falling out from under her and just realizing that like as a black lesbian the the people who 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 had been violently beaten by police who also I think, called her a butch-ass dyke while they were doing it. it for her, she said that was a moment where she was like, wow, I, who do I call in that moment? The people I'm told are the source of safety for us as, as a queer community, as women, as, to a certain extent, you know, Black communities in that moment were absolutely the opposite and and described that feeling of, of just the, the ground dropping out from under her. And then... She had the experience of community coming together around her, the Audrey Lorde Project in New York City organized around her case. We had legal representation, but we also had community rallies and protests and marches and, and statements and just people coming together around her and, and another person who had the same experience during the same incident. And she got to experience safety from that perspective. And I don't know that it fully healed or repaired the sensation she had of the ground falling out from under her, but that sense that you describe when people realize that police cannot keep them safe and do not keep them safe and are not even set up to keep them safe is definitely an opening. And it can also be what makes people reach harder for it and double down on, well, we have to be able to fix it. We have to be able to make this work. We have to be able to do this because I can't tolerate the alternative, which is that is the knowledge that they don't keep us safe and can't and won't and aren't set up for that purpose. So we really need to, as organizers, seize that opening and invite people into this conversation about what safety is. And the first thing I think we have to do is help people see how they are creating safety for themselves and each other and what kinds of things will increase their sense of safety and well-being, housing, healthcare connections with people in community, the knowledge that if you need something, if you fall sick with COVID, if you fall down the stairs, if you just can't go out that day to get food, someone might check in on you, someone will help you get what you need, someone will check on you by phone and talk to you if if you're feeling low. And to help people see how they're already creating safety in their lives, or creating more safety, and 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 where, if we had more of the resources, more of the relationships, more of the skills, more of the infrastructure that creates a community of collective care, the the closer we'll get. So I think that's one piece. I think the second piece is, and this again is a moment where you know Mariam really brought this to our conversations in the book and and blew my mind open was you know, this notion that safety is just relative. It's relative to the resources you have, the relationships you're in, the conditions that you're living in. But it's just, it's not an absolute. You can't achieve perfect safety. And that's what the cops try and sell us. And that's what capitalism tries to sell us. But somehow we never quite get it. So, you know, we talk about it as kind of a protection racket, right? Where the cops come and say, give us your money, we'll give you safety. And then turns out safety is not possible. So they come back and they say, give us more money and we'll give you safety. And they just keep coming back saying more, 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 more. You'll never get it until you give us more. And, and it's the realization that safety is relative and something we create ourselves and with each other collectively that can break us free of that cycle and of that protection racket. We talk about a couple of, of, things around that. We talk about abolitionist conceptions of safety, which is not something that someone can sell you, but in fact, is something that you build together. We talk about the relative nature of safety in, in a film called The the Giverny Project, in which you know a filmmaker just stood in Harlem and asked Black women if they felt safe in that moment as they walked by. And their answers were all conditional. They were like, well, it depends if you know, I'm with this person. It depends if I, you know, feel like I'm supported by my friends and community. It depends if the time of day, it depends where I am. It depends. It depends was basically the answer everybody gave, right? And it's recognizing the it depends part and the relational part of safety that I think opens us up to a better understanding of how we create greater collective well-being in our communities. And then recognizing we'll never achieve it. And Mariam introduced me to this quote from James Baldwin from his last interview where he was like, look, you know, we can think that we're safe, but all of us are just out here whistling in the dark and anything could happen at any time. And the sooner we accept that and stop pursuing an illusion of safety, of perfect safety, of complete safety all the time, the less we'll be prisoner to what people try and sell us in order to achieve that. And the last thing I want to say about safety is a quote that I heard from Erin Miles Cloud that just really, I think, encapsulates when people say, you know, abolitionists want to abandon our communities to violence, or abolitionists don't care about safety, or we don't care about all the kinds of violence that are in our communities. Is she said, you know, everyone cares about someone's safety somewhere, some of the time. Abolitionists care about everyone's safety everywhere, all of the time. And that's what motivates us to give a really clear-eyed look at what is and isn't getting us closer or producing relatively more safety, and what gives us a really clear-eyed look at what police are and aren't doing and and helps us pull back the veil and debunk the myths that they are promoting and the smoke screens that they're putting out about The fact that they are somehow essential to the notion of safety and helps us see that they actually get in the way of that. They rob us of the resources we need for safety. They create unsafety, as Mariam says, by their mere presence. They signal lack of safety and helps us really get concrete and clear-eyed about what our communities need in order to increase our individual and collective (laughs) well-being.
0: I could not agree with Andrea Moore. Knocking down people's illusions about police is not enough. Because when we leave people grasping for answers, they will often grasp for some version of what they already know. And that means they will be vulnerable to notions that if we only throw more money at this failed mechanism, it will finally save us. We have to invite people into the work of creating solutions. And we have to share examples of how that's happening and invite people to consider what they are already doing in their own lives to create safety. One young activist I talked with after the fall of Roe told me about how she and other students had worked to crowdfund abortions for classmates in need when she was in high school. On a number of levels, getting that care was a safety issue. But it didn't always work out because the efforts of these young people were not supported by the system or the adults in their lives. We talked about the unsafe situations and traumas that might have been avoided if those students' efforts at mutual aid had been better supported, or even embraced or taken up by their community as a standard response to an unwanted pregnancy. I assured that young person that they and their friends had been on the right track, and the fact that society was set up in opposition to their success does not mean they were doing something wrong. It means that society is set up in opposition to our safety, and it takes collaborative work to combat the dangers that are imposed upon us. Moments when people not only realize the true nature of the system, but also understand their own power in relation to other people, don't happen every day. Many people are in need of what Miriam and I have called a jailbreak of the imagination. I often talk about someone who responded to a Twitter thread I wrote some years ago, explaining how little police actually assist people in crisis and how actively dangerous their presence can be for some of us. Someone replied that they understood everything I was saying, but that if they get robbed or attacked, they wanted there to be someone for them to call. It was then that I realized that, on some level, a lot of people know nothing positive will happen when they call the police, but that sense of routine. That there is something we are supposed to do after a bad thing happens, that we have some kind of recourse, is important to people, even when the results are routinely unsatisfying or even harmful. I often find that, for some people, experiencing the reality of solidarity is the only thing that has the power to interrupt these cycles. Earlier this season, I described the direct action in defense of trans lives during which a man who disagreed with our message clearly wanted to confront me while I was speaking through a bullhorn, but lost his nerve in the face of a determined crowd of people who were loudly affirming their commitment to defend trans lives. That was an amazing night. But one thing I really hoped people came away with was the power we had in that moment to keep each other safe. Because if anyone was going to protect me that night, it was not going to be a cop. I knew that going in. But actually seeing people step up and having the experience of realizing that they, collectively, are a force that can defend trans lives, gave me a lot of hope. Because just as the crowd was my safety that night, we are each other's best chance at safety in any given moment.
1: Even police research shows that most of the time, even when in those situations where it's, you know, it's a robbery in progress or whatever, people call they don't call the police first. they call someone else: a friend, a neighbor, an insurance company if, it, if the thing has already you know happened. And it's part of research around police response times and whether, you know shortening the response time you know makes a difference in resolving what they label as crime. So it's sort of hidden in this research that basically it doesn't make a difference. The response time doesn't make that much of a difference because people are calling someone else first. And that basically, usually the cops get there, whatever has happened has happened. And either people were able to call someone to assist them or they weren't. That was closer by, that was nearby or someone was present nearby. So that I think is interesting. I think also in that scenario, I want to think about what we can do to make sure someone isn't going to be robbed in the first place, right? And if someone's needs are met, then maybe they're not going to try and have them met in a way that might harm another person. And so it's also backing up from that moment of crisis. And I think that's what abolition organizing really feels like to me is getting a thousand miles ahead of the crisis. But rather than organizing our lives around crises that, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about and, and many organizers talk about, you know, rather than organizing our lives around responding to the crises that racial capitalism creates for us and responds to with policing, we can get ahead of those crises by restructuring our society entirely, as she said, by changing everything such that people's needs are met. We have the skills to de-escalate and respond to conflict, and we have the skills to prevent, intervene in, interrupt, and heal from violence. And everyone is able to engage in that work on a daily basis, so it doesn't fall on just a few people to do all of that. And the research really shows that you know it's not the presence of police necessary, it's just the presence of someone in a situation that can, as you're saying, interrupt, prevent, and heal from violence without needing to involve someone with a. A gun or a taser or a baton, which never doesn't carry with it the likelihood and risk of violence at the same time.
0: I am just going to briefly interrupt us with your weekly reminder that Truthout is a nonprofit news organization that only exists because of listeners and readers like you. If you keep track of the independent news landscape, you know that we have lost some great publications in recent months and years. Journalists are facing layoffs across the industry. Here at Truthout, we are still hanging on, but I am not going to lie to you all. It is a struggle. The media landscape has been engineered to wipe out anything that isn't owned by the very people who are screwing us all over. Corporate algorithms are hurting us but we are still here providing award-winning news and analysis that I believe helps to fuel and uplift our movements. Truthout has not laid anyone off during the pandemic. We are a union shop, and we have the best family and sick leave policies in the industry. So if you think all of that is worth fighting for, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today. Or maybe even become a sustainer, because truth be told, those people are the reason we are still here. Thanks so much, and back to the show. When it comes to interrupting and preventing violence, I have already spoken to the inadequacy of Democrats and why they cannot acknowledge any of the facts about policing that we are discussing here. But we would be remiss if we didn't also address the Biden of it all. Oh my god i i <laughs> Biden makes my head
1: explode and has been since nineteen ninety four and he just keeps being Biden. You know it could not have been more fortuitous uh in terms of timing that on the day that Biden made an announcement that he was going to pour yet another one point three billion into police and and put another hundred thousand cops in our streets and neighborhoods that that was the same day that no more police came out. And, and so the response is there. And it really just starkly highlighted that we are contending for power and fighting around two dramatically different visions of the world, right? One is where wealth is increasingly concentrated and the line around diminishing resources available to the rest of us will be increasingly and more tightly and more violently policed and a world that we were just talking about in which everyone's needs are met. People have everything that they need to not just survive, but thrive and to reach their highest human potential. And we all have the skills and capacities and desires and imaginations to respond to the problems we face in ways that reflect Black feminist politics of collective care. And so it feels like that day was a day when the the two visions were being sort of starkly juxtaposed in the world. And also, given his speech, I think later that day, claiming to be anti fascist was just irony upon irony. You can't claim to be anti fascist while fueling fascism by pouring more and more money into policing. And it's not just that there are an alarming to many people number of cops who are proud boys and oath keepers and members of explicitly white supremacist and pro-fascist organizations. It's that, as you just said, the premise of policing is sorting people into deserving, undeserving, and sorting people into people who are deemed criminalized and people who are not, doing that in ways that absolutely manufacture and reinforce a social order that is racialized, gendered, sexualized, and organized around a fascist notion of nation state. You're giving these 100,000 cops the discretion to manufacture that order with violence and impunity. And you're also fueling fascism, as you just said, by robbing communities of resources. And then creating fertile ground for the right to organize people who have been robbed of resources into blaming and criminalizing the same people that the cops are targeting. And instead of creating a fertile ground for us to imagine and enact ways of being that reflect collective care and, and a common purpose of surviving this moment, Under the pretense of, you know, fighting fascism, Biden and the Democrats are creating conditions in which fascism can flourish and thrive and conditions in which people can organize someone to believe that Black people in a top supermarket in Buffalo are the source of their problems and the deprivations that they're experiencing and not the people who are organizing them to go enact violence. And it's one of the many things I really appreciate about movement memos is that you are creating the conversations that help us to really get sharp around that, not only in our understanding of it, but also how we're talking about it. And it also has to infuse how we organize. So for instance, you know, the Democrats can't claim to be pro-choice and then Pour $1.3 billion into the police who will enforce abortion bans and criminalize pregnant people and people seeking to end pregnancies. They can't claim to be pro labor and pour $1.3 billion into police who then crack down on organizers. They can't claim to be pro environment and then pour $1.3 billion into police who will crack down on water protectors. You can't keep pouring money into police coffers instead of people's pockets and meeting the needs of folks including i mean this is most outrageous that pandemic relief is going into police pockets which was part of biden's plan which is just outrageous and you were talking earlier about how the media is complicit in in propaganda i just it's it's also so complicit in the just genocidal policies that the government is enacting right now around the pandemic By not reporting on the fact that we're experiencing more deaths, COVID-related deaths now than at the height of the pandemic, that we are experiencing a mass disabling event, that we are all literally being sacrificed on the altar of capitalism, and then adding insult to injury, the, the, the funds, the resources that are being named as responsive to that are being funneled to police. And... And there's just no question that that's how we should respond to the crisis created by the pandemic, the climate, the economy, uh, and the combination of them. So I just, um, yeah, rant rant complete.
0: (laughs) I know we're going to get yelled at for that segment because people are going to say we are telling people not to vote for the Democrats. But to be clear, we are not saying that at all. I will be voting on November 8th. For one thing, we have a bunch of judges on the ballot in Illinois, including two state Supreme Court seats. And I also believe in casting defensive ballots to slow the march of fascism. But for all the reasons Andrea just explained, I do not believe we can afford to view the Democrats as a force against fascism. A fascist mass movement must be countered by an anti-fascist mass movement. So, I will be voting. But I hope people understand that voting is not even, as I have heard some people say, the bare minimum. In the scope of my personal political life, it amounts to running a quick errand. But I do urge people to assess what's on the ballot in their area, no matter how fed up you are with establishment Democrats, because we have a lot of people to protect and a lot of ground to defend right now. And local races, like judicial races, Ballot measures, school board races, and city council seats are more important than ever. There are fascists fighting to seize just about every level of governance, and we need to push back against those advances. If you are not in the know about local races, I recommend looking for voting guides from organizations you trust. In Chicago, I tend to rely on the Girl I Guess voting guide and Injustice Watch's Guide to Judicial Candidates. When it comes to non-electoral political matters, I also rely a lot on guides and toolkits. Several of my favorite resources that have appeared in the last couple of years come from an initiative Andrea co-founded called Interrupting Criminalization. Those of you who check the show notes of our episodes for organizing resources will probably be familiar with that name because I regularly recommend their toolkits and reports as resources for organizers. But given that a lot of Interrupting Criminalization's work is the kind of background support that allows other organizing projects to happen, a lot of people are unaware of the initiative's contributions.
1: Interrupting criminalization is, um, we weren't very creative with the name. We we want to support organizing to interrupt criminalization (laughs) Um, and particularly criminalization of Black women, girls, queer and trans folks. So we definitely look at criminalization through the lens of race, gender and sexuality, disability, class, nation. And the work we've been doing since the uprising, has been very much about supporting organizers working to defund police and divest from policing and invest in and build ecosystems of collective care and community safety that are root in Black feminist politics and ethics of collective care. And so we do research reports, we put out toolkits, we put out resources. I think some of the more invisible important work that we do is hosting spaces for organizers to come together and strategize and practice spaces for folks to really be able to come to to, to workshop the ways in which we're practicing new worlds, to workshop the million experiments we're engaged in as the millionexperiments.com website and podcast document to, to imagine and live otherwise and to enact abolitionist visions in the day-to-day. But I think one of the spaces that feels most relevant, I mean, they're all incredibly relevant, but one of the spaces that feels important in this moment is one that we actually first convened in 2019 around criminalization through access to medical care. And actually, we started the conversation in May of 2019 around recognition that the Trump administration was advancing all of its policy objectives through criminalization, because that is the fascist playbook, that's also the neoliberal playbook, that criminalization is the method by which their policies are advanced. And we were already seeing increasing criminalization of sexual, gender, and reproductive autonomy. So we came together to talk about all the ways that that's happening and all the institutions that that's happening in. And some are more obvious than others, police, probation, parole, jails, but also healthcare public health housing social services there's many arenas in which that policing of sexual reproductive and gender autonomy takes place that that aren't always as visible so we mapped that out mapped out where people were engaging in resistance and where people can plug in from where they are if you're already working on public health issues you can plug in there if you're already working on housing issues you can plug in there to interrupt the criminalization of sexual reproductive and gender autonomy so that was the meeting we had in May 2019, in the fall at the Sister Song, let's talk about sex conference. We focused particularly on this criminalization of sexual gender reproductive autonomy through healthcare uh, access and public health, and we thought about all the ways in which accessing medical care or healthcare is a point or site of criminalization, and not just for pregnant people, people seeking abortions. But also for parents, for trans people, for sex working people, for drug using people, for migrants, and for disabled people, and for HIV positive people. And so we brought people from all of those movements into a room together to say, how do we address the fact that the medical industrial complex is a point of intersection and and entry into the prison industrial complex and the ways in which those two institutions frameworks complexes intersect and that particularly comes from our approach of looking at criminalization through the lens of the experiences of black women girls queer and trans people because when you do that you see how policing and criminalization happens beyond just the cop on the beat on the street you see how people are profiled when they go to hospitals for prenatal visits delivery you see how people are denied care or Criminalized as they access care as parents or as people in the sex trade or as drug users. You see where disabled people are denied reproductive autonomy. You see all the ways in which policing happens, or certainly many more ways in which policing happens. And so we came out of that convening with a network of folks across those movements, along with healthcare providers and healthcare users, to think about what are the principles we want. Healthcare providers, institutions, and associations to adopt that will interrupt criminalization at the point of accessing medical care. And we don't want them to just sign these principles, we want them to enact them. And so we, over two years, workshop these principles. We're about to launch them publicly on November 3rd. And, you know, it just is an example of organizing where that work was happening over a period of years, it was percolating. It was happening, and then this summer happened, right? Roe was overturned, and criminalization of gender-affirming care for trans youth and trans adults. There was a a wildfire of legislation across the country, and it was a moment where we were asking healthcare providers to stand in their principles, their ethics, their beliefs, their commitments as healthcare providers to do no harm. And we had already created this framework of, of... inviting them into the knowledge that criminalization is harm and so their participation in criminalization goes against their core oath as public health providers or as as healthcare workers or providers and so we were ready and we released two documents in the last 6 months around how fights against criminalization are fights for reproductive sexual and gender autonomy and fights for reproductive sexual and gender autonomy and access to sexual, gender, and reproductive health care need to be involved in a larger fight against criminalization. So, you know, that's what organizing is, is that you continue to build across movements. You continue to move from where you are, but in coordination, and you continue to build the analysis and the tools and the frameworks necessary so that when a moment erupts like 2020 or like the current moment around the abortion bans spreading across the country and the trans healthcare bans spreading across the country, you have the frameworks ready. You have the ways for people to plug in. You have possibility for people to resist. So that's what we're trying to create: at interrupting criminalization is is those resources, practice spaces, supports, frameworks, and cross movement conversations. And I just want to say again: if we're resisting fascism, we can't be in silos. We can't be in oh, I'm only fighting over here for my right to have an abortion, and I don't actually believe in trans people's rights to access healthcare that affirms their gender or, frankly, their right to exist. You can't do that and effectively fight fascism. It's the same fight. It's literally the state telling you what you can and can't do with your body and and doing that along the axes of race, gender, and sexuality. It's patriarchy in operation. You can't fight patriarchy only from one place and not understand how it operates across the board. And so I just really want to emphasize that and I want to come back to the conversation around Democrats and criminalization and to say that the people who are fighting for abortion care access have to be fighting against criminalization and they have to be resisting this notion that we've gonna pour $1.3 billion into more cops because those cops are the ones who are gonna be doing the things that you're trying to fight. And you have to also join in the fight for trans health care and sexual and reproductive autonomy across the board because it's the same fight. And you have to fight against criminalization of drug users and pregnant people and parents because it's the same fight. And against the criminalization of disabled people, migrants, HIV positive people, because it's the same fight. So that feels like some of the most powerful work that we're doing right now. And we're doing so many more <laughs> other things, but feels like it maybe it's some of the most relevant to the topics that you've been talking about here on Movement Memos.
0: Circling back to the kinds of constructive conversations we need to have with people about the realities of policing, Andrea emphasized a point that Miriam and I also try to drive home in our upcoming book, which is that when you are inviting someone to transform their worldview, facts are not enough. I think in the
1: conversation, like the one that you describe about when you're having conversations with people in the community about safety and how we create it, I think one mistake that we sometimes make and that we talk about in the book is that, yes, facts and figures are important and they play an important part in unmasking the myth, the lie that police produce safety. But we have to recognize that we're not just talking to people's heads. We're talking to people's hearts. And we're talking to the most basic human instinct to feel safer, at least. And so we have to learn how to speak to people's embodied experiences of safety and emotional experiences of safety. Just as we need people to divest financially from policing, we need them to divest ideologically, but also emotionally and spiritually from policing, including the ways that we enact it ourselves in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in the name of our own safety. And so that that work feels important and it feels important for us to really practice and highlight and continue to work from the place of how do we remind folks of when they've had embodied feelings of safety and how to create those more. And how do we create those embodied feelings together? And so that, to me, is the part around the million experiments, the practices, the, the small scale, sort of how can we create safety in our building through a text thread? How can we create greater safety in our friend community by having, you know, a phone tree? How can we create greater safety on our block by just knowing that, you know, these five people will cop watch while these five people will de-escalate while these five people will make sure people's material needs are met because we need to feel it. We can't just talk about it. And I just, I think that's something that a lot of us have been practicing over the course of the pandemic, prior to the pandemic forever. And certainly your work and others who engage in mutual aid work and folks who are engaged in transformative justice across the country have been practicing it for decades. But I, I just want to name that There's only so far we go with facts and figures. And the notion that we just somehow have to, we can shift the narrative by just the right combination of words, the right slogan, the perfectly placed op-ed in the Washington Post, like that's not how we're going to get where we're going. How we get where we're going is in relationship and in conversation with each other and in practice of safety and collective care with each other.
0: Dialogue is something a lot of people struggle with these days. People are exhausted. The pandemic maximized our time on social media, which has, to put it gently, not improved our collective communication skills. Some people seem to fully embrace the death cult of normalcy, while COVID continues to kill and debilitate people in a near-maskless United States. Those who have not often find themselves frustrated, sometimes questioning whether they can even relate to other people anymore. I see a lot of organizers who are normally outgoing and passionate about reaching people becoming more frustrated and resentful. The invisibilization of COVID as a social crisis is not happening in isolation. Because if people are putting up emotional walls that make them oblivious to an extra couple of thousand deaths per week from COVID, what else isn't getting past those walls? There's a sense of disconnection between people right now. We have a solidarity shortage, and we desperately need to reconnect. An issue like police or prison abolition, which is a marginalized perspective, might not seem like a unifying place to begin. But I would argue that it's an important one, because to get our heads around the idea of abolishing the police, we don't just need to understand the violence of cops. It's important to understand what they are and what they actually do. But we also have to understand how much violence is erased when we frame violence within the scheme of cops and criminals. As Miriam and I discuss in our book, Let This Radicalize You, which will be out next year, when all of the death and violence around us is happening according to the dictates of the system, we are told that we are experiencing peace, and people often accept that characterization. We need to not only disturb that false peace, but also obliterate the illusions that maintain it. One of the many sections of No More Police that lends itself to that task is about homicide statistics and how they overemphasize the risk of experiencing violence for most people since violence is concentrated in particular areas where the impacts of organized abandonment are most concentrated. But also underestimate our risk of preventable death because the structural harms that are most likely to kill us are not considered homicides. Andrea and Miriam wrote, Organized abandonment that manifests, for example, as lack of access to routine healthcare and healthy foods, unsafe employment, proximity to pollution or evictions and foreclosures, produces very real increases in risk of premature death that are not reflected in homicide statistics. For instance, by some estimates, evictions directly contributed to more than 11,000 COVID deaths in the U.S. in 2020 that were not counted as homicide. Homicide rates thus both overestimate the danger of being randomly harmed and underestimate the likelihood that we will experience preventable violence. Conversations around policing and prisons and what is considered violent or acceptable are crucial right now. We have been conditioned to ignore mass suffering and death, so long as these things happen within the social order we have been handed, as enforced by cops. Getting people to understand the violence of this system and how it affects them will require a shift in understanding about what constitutes violence. The true story of what we are up against has to overtake the illusions created by the news media, by shows like Law and Order. And novels like Lord of the Flies. We have to tell different stories, and we have to understand ourselves and one another as people with a greater potential to help each other than to hurt each other. We know there are people who would hurt us. I am all too aware of them. But that's exactly why, more than ever, we need to figure out who we can turn to in order to create safety in our lives. And we need to broaden those circles. I am so grateful for No More Police, which is an incredible tool for organizers and a book that I think is going to help light the way in our struggles. I am also incredibly grateful to Andrea Ritchie for making the time to talk with me. I always get so much out of our conversations, and I hope you all did as well, because you will be hearing from us again in two weeks when we talk about abolition and the state and abolitionist futures. Thank you for doing this with me, Andrea, and for all that you do. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets.